This is a special edition of uh, Montgomery Talks. We'll be speaking to two people today about an incredibly important issue, teen suicide. It'll be a little different for us because we'll be having somebody here in the studio as well as somebody who will be phoning in in a little bit. The first person is, uh, let me introduce Rachel Larkin. She's Director of Crisis Prevention and Intervention Services at EveryMind. EveryMind is a Rockville nonprofit that operates the, the local hotline, which is part of the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline Network. Welcome, Ms. Larkin. Thank you so much for having me here. There are a hundred things to ask about this topic, but first I want to give the issue some scope. Mm-hmm. According to the United Health Foundation, 9.7 people per 100,000 in Montgomery County die by suicide. Mm-hmm. With a county the size of Montgomery County, that's about 100 people a year, or the number of employees in a good size small business. And suicide is the second leading cause of death for youth aged 10 to 24. Yep. And the first question that comes to my mind, and I admit I'm on, I'm on the side of the line of rationality, and that is why. Mm-hmm. Why does this happen? I mean, I wish I could give you the answer. There's so many people out there trying to get the, to give, figure out what that, why. But there's so many different factors. Each and every person is really unique. What we are seeing is an increase lately, and that's what people are trying to figure out. A lot of people are looking at social media. A lot of people are looking at stress. I mean, childhood for us, and I'm in my mid-40s, was very different than childhood is today. We didn't have social media. You know, I was talking to a young man on chat the other day who wanted to take his life because he thought he couldn't get into an Ivy League school. I mean, that is what the pressure is today. Kids in elementary school in this county are making choices about their career path. Can you imagine trying to figure out what your career path is when you're in elementary school? I was figuring out, like, you know, which boy bander I like the best. So it's a very different way of living these days than when we were coming up. There's a lot of pressure. Social media is sort of a never-ending intensity. Life is harder these days. There's a lot of different mental illnesses that people are struggling with, anxiety, depression, self-harm, and other issues. So it's it's sort of a lot of different things are coming up. Our, our caller has a special perspective on this, and um, I'd like to introduce Susan Rosenstock. Hi, Doug. How are you? I'm, I'm just fine. Um, I, I think the first question I want to ask you is I want you to describe your son. Describe Evan. Evan was a six foot three varsity athlete at Winston Churchill High School in Potomac. He had braces and a smile that showed those braces all the time. He was the captain and leader of the I-270 team that was coached by Eddie Jordan and a friend to all. Somebody who just really helped everybody else. Really, that's the consistent theme I get through talking to everybody who knew Evan was how helpful he was as well as how much he was fun to be with, enjoyable. I wasn't much of an athlete in high school, but um, I know a number who were. And athletes can be very methodical when it comes to assessing their performance. Is, is that true of Evan? Yes, they are methodical in, in their performance. That's really how athletes become better and how they're proving themselves to their coaches as well as their team. Right. So what happened to Evan? Evan had a back injury at basketball. He went and had an MRI taken and went to basketball practice with khaki pants and a button-down shirt and a V-neck sweater vest and a note saying he couldn't practice. Unfortunately, I'm not really sure what happened behind closed doors, but according to the kids, the other boys that were both on varsity and JV, something happened there where Evan was asked to do strenuous activities that he shouldn't have been doing. The example was ice and mopping the floor. So having that happen, then Evan had surgery. I knew none of this. We knew none 
none of this. Evan had surgery and was very happy that he had to, basically he had something, they could fix it and he'll get better and he'll play basketball again, the sport he loved since he was seven years old. And after surgery, he wasn't bouncing back. He just was not himself. He took one half of a painkiller because he knew the risk of painkillers and he did treat his body like a temple. We found out later after looking in through his Facebook and all of his stuff, he had never smoked marijuana. Um, you know, he, he really did treat his body like a temple. So as soon as he could get off of the pain meds, he did hardly taking any, a half of one. And then he just wasn't bouncing back and he was falling into a sadness that wasn't going away. He wasn't, his personality was changing. He would be agitated and withdrawn. He was not taking care of himself. He would come home and just collapse because it was all he could do to stay in school all day after surgery. So four months from the time that Evan was injured, four months later, we were at his funeral. He fell hopeless that he would never play basketball again. He told us that he did not feel right and that he felt something was wrong. We took him for all the physical tests. We took him to a rheumatologist to do a second level of tests. Everything came back physically normal. He said to us, I want to go talk to someone because I don't feel right. And he couldn't put his finger on it, but he told us he didn't feel right. So we found a psychiatrist recommended in the area. And unfortunately, after seven visits, Evan was prescribed Celexa, which is no longer prescribed for children under 21. And after three increased dosages of Celexa, Evan really was the warning on the commercial, and we spoke about it. Unfortunately, the psychiatrist asked me if he was functioning, going to school, playing with friends, socializing, all of which was Evan's nature, even at a very low level. And she said, then he's you know, he's functioning. And so we went home and on Monday morning, he ended his life. And four months after he did that, four of his friends had come to me and said, if this could happen to Evan, this could happen to anyone. And I'm scared. I don't want to lose another friend. And that's how You Matter got started. Okay. You Matter. You you spell it U-M-T-T-R for anybody who's looking for it online. And what exactly is the goal of, of, of your organization? Thank you. Uh, first of all, I want to explain that when you, the kids say, first of all, this is an all peer driven group. If you ask them how old I am, they say I'm an adolescent because it's all peer driven. And I listen to them and I spend most of my time protecting their voice because as sure, I'm sure Rachel would agree, peer to peer is the most effective way for us as adults to be able to find out if there is something going on with a kid that we don't know about. So it's an all peer led organization. They say it's you matter, and the only vowel is the you because it's you that matters. So it's U-M-T-T-R. Again, the only vowel is the U. And it is an organization that is aiming to change the culture of youth athletic, school sport, as well as just the culture of teenagers to stop bullying, drug abuse, and suicide. And we're doing that effectively through messages of hope, help, and strength. We do not go through signs or, or sad, shocking, and 
traumatic activities. That story I just shared is not something typically I'll share unless somebody asks specifically, but I'll generalize Evan's situation just to be able to say that's how this got started. But really what we want to do is we want to spread messages of hope, help, and strength. We want to point out protective factors run campaigns that have messages based on those protective factors and build resilience in our kids. We're trying to get them, it's called an upstream preventive method, which just means basically instead of catching them when they're going over the waterfall, we want to catch them way up the river before they ever get into the water. And we can do that with positive messaging. That's a great metaphor. Ms. Larkin, tell us um, what organizations like You Matter mean to suicide prevention, particularly among teenagers. Well, peer-led organizations are extremely important because what we know is when kids are struggling, they're much more likely to tell each other than an adult. So arming teens with the tools they need to help each other is super important. That's why we have the Be The One campaign in Montgomery County as well. And then also the great thing about You Matter and Be The One and other organizations like that is it gets people talking about suicide. And it's a topic that people are really often scared to bring up, even ask their loved ones about. But really the only way to prevent suicide is to talk about it. So the more we get this topic into the community, the more we can sort of bring it to the forefront and people can do things to prevent it. As somebody who's been a reporter for the last 30 some years, we've we've often felt skittish about reporting about suicide. Mm-hmm. What what are you, what would be your advice to a, um, a reporter saying what to do about when they find out that someone has taken their life? Right, and in, in uh, something called contagion is an issue. So there's actually some great media guidelines out there on that, but one is you don't talk about the method. You don't glorify it. Um, you know, it's you talk about it as a as a global issue, um, but you don't want to inspire copycats, which is very very tricky because we do need to discuss this issue. The Washington Post has done some great reporting recently on the issue of suicide, and it's really talking about it on a more global scale. You know. Sue and Evan's story is very impactful, but again, you know, going into the details, sometimes huge memorials, things like that can sort of trigger folks that are on the bubble. So we want to be definitely careful about how we talk about those things. So even reporting on a memorial service for for a student who mm-hmm. is no longer with the school, we have to be careful. Yeah. Actually, there's a lot of guidelines. The Suicide Prevention Resource Center has an entire toolkit on how schools handle a loss by suicide because, again, a lot there's a lot of kids out there struggling, and you don't want to sort of push people over the edge. The, the show 13 Reasons Why that came out last year was a huge issue because it was very triggering for a lot of people. It showed a, a suicide in graphic detail. And for a lot of kids that were struggling, it was really brought up a lot of stuff for them. It sort of worsened their symptoms. And there are people out there that feel like that show sort of glorified suicide rather than showing that there's ways to get help. You know, that there's a lot of things out there that you can do to take care of yourself. You can help take others. Instead, it was sort of glorifying that death. So, you know, organizations like You Matter and Be The One really focus more on how you can help yourself and others and that there is hope because hope is key to keeping people on the side of life. I would like to um, just jump in and dovetail on Rachel's comment about 13 Reasons Why. From the kids' standpoint, the teenagers that we work with, they were extremely affected by that show on a number of levels. One was, which really surprised me, they wanted me to watch it no matter what. They told me they would watch it with me. They said, you know, we'll we'll get you through it, but you got to see this. And I said, why? And they said, because this really is how high school is today. So in one very, very, very small 
small positive way, I'm not a fan of the show at all, uh, is that it allowed adults to see the perception of kids and their high school. And when they told me that that's what high school is about, and I watched enough of the trailers and spoke enough to them that, that I understood what they were saying, that was pretty frightening to see that this is exactly how, as Rachel pointed out, we did not grow up. Interesting. Okay. We're at the point where we typically take a break, and I would like to just invite everybody to just stay through the break. Um, we're speaking with Rachel Larkin of Everymind, a local nonprofit, as well as uh, Susan Rosenstock, who has started an organization called You Matter to help prevent. Both organizations are involved in uh, trying to prevent suicide. We'll be right back. MCM, your community media center, is making Montgomery County a great place to live through programs like 21 This Week. Montgomery County's hardest-hitting political talk show keeps you up to date with the local political scene. Montgomery Community Media. Our middle name is Community. And we're back with Montgomery Talks. We are speaking with Rachel Larkin of EveryMind, a Rockville nonprofit that uh, is involved with preventing suicides in the county. And we're also speaking with Susan Rosenstock, who started an organization in the wake of her own son's suicide called You Matter, U-M-T-T-R. So, Rachel, you operate the, the hotline. Mm -hmm. who, who exactly do you hear from? Well, we have a couple different platforms. So we have the old-fashioned phone. We do chat through the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline. And we have a text line as well. So we hear from everybody from age seven through 97, but young people really prefer technology when they reach out, texting or chatting online. Um, that is how they communicate these days. And it's very interesting because what we get is something called the disinhibition effect. And what that is is people will you know, tell you something in the first minute of chat. They've been abused, they've been sexually assaulted, they're suicidal, that might take a little longer on the phones to draw out and is certainly harder to draw out when you're talking face to face. So we get a lot of folks that are kind of putting their stuff out there and you know every day we're told I've never told anybody this before. I'm afraid to talk about this with people. So it is a really safe place. It is confidential. You know, we do not send out intervention just because you're feeling suicidal. We do a lot of work on safety planning and risk reduction. So, you know, the vast majority of folks that we talk to that are suicidal, we don't need to send intervention out on. Um, so it is confidential. It is a safe place to share your feelings. We really listen and we really do care. We are um, accredited by the American Association of Suicidology, so we have very extensive training for folks around this issue. Well, that brings an interesting point. So if I have a child who is suicidal, mm -hmm. she, he or she could reach out to you, mm -hmm. but as the parent, I would never know. Not unless they were at risk. Um, a lot of times we try to talk about telling your parents. One of the things we struggle with is parent reactions. It's hard. I have two small children of my own, and just the thought of my child being suicidal is terrifying. A lot of parents don't know how to react. They don't know where to go for help. In Montgomery County, we're incredibly lucky. We've got the crisis center. We've got the mental health access team. We have the youth and children behavioral health resources that are fantastic around here. But it's scary. You don't know what to say. And a lot of times the issues to an adult may seem very trivial or unimportant. And to the kid, it's everything, right? 
were talking to a young person the other day that wanted to take her life because her boyfriend broke up with her. And it was a boyfriend that she had through an online game who she had never met in person. So as middle-aged person, it's kind of hard for me to wrap my head around the fact that this young, bright, wonderful person wants to take her life because this online boyfriend broke up with her. And my thought was, you don't even know if it's a boy. It could be like a grandma in Idaho, you know? But to her, she felt hopeless. She felt like she couldn't go on. And that's where we have to be if we want to help people. We have to sort of be where the person is and ask them about their feelings and listen to them and, and help them connect. And you see on the Be The One website that all those steps of things that you can do for somebody who's in crisis are there. And actually, our website was redesigned by an 18-year-old Whitman graduate last summer to make it really accessible for young people so they know exactly what to do, what to ask, and how to sort of interact with folks that are you know, concerned. Because it, it, it can be a scary conversation to have. And I'll go back to my original question. I, that hopelessness mm-hmm. seems so hard to fathom from at least from the point of view of somebody who has no intention of taking their life. Mm -hmm. I'm at a loss to figure out how somebody in your position can interact with that person if if, if it's that unfathomable. Sure, it's hard to understand the suicidal state of mind, right? Because it's not a logical place. The person is usually so overwhelmed with pain that they want the pain to end. They don't necessarily want to die, but they want the pain to end, and dying is the only way they can see to end the pain. So... Listening is really powerful. Listening to how bad the person feels. Listening to their issues without judgment. You can do a tremendous amount, but it is hard to understand that headspace, particularly if you've never been there, because it is so, you know, the whole brain actually acts very differently when somebody's in a suicidal state. You're working more from the back, the hippocampus, the amygdala, which is the emotional center. The the prefrontal cortex, the logic center that says, yes, you have options. Yes, there's people that love you is sort of shut down by the emotional part. So it's hard for people who aren't in that space to understand, but you can do a lot by listening, by asking, by working with coping, you know, teaching kids coping strategies when they get in that space, safety planning. So there is, even if you can't understand it, there's still a lot that you can do. Okay. And that's the purpose of You Matter, correct, Ms. Rosenstock? Uh, Yes. Please call me Sue. Uh, Absolutely. And what we do is we take that a step further on a much more intimate level. Every mind is awesome, and they're great at the global and then even down to the minutiae. Well, not minutiae, but the, the, the finite points, which is a really great organization for us to rely on. And that's, you know, where we collaborate with other organizations because we are not therapists. We tell our kids, you are not therapists. You are not expected to be a therapist. You are not expected to fix this problem. You're expected to be a good friend. And what does that mean, to be a good friend? And then we talk about times where you have to actively listen to your friend, where you're not drifting your head into what's the next thing or how to fix it or what do I do now, but really listen to them and be able to reflect that. As well, what we do is we teach the signs, and we then talk about what each one of those looks like to each other. In other words, remember, I'm the adolescent now. And so anybody, 10 to 24, let's use that as our group that we're discussing today, if we sit down and said, what does it look like to have a personality change, which is what we do, in 10-year-olds, okay, and we sat down and said, what does that look like in 24-year-olds? it's going to look much different. 
so what we do is we try to take that peer-led movement and share with each other what the warning signs are, but then what do those look like in my friends? What does that mean? And then what do I do when I see it? I don't want to lose my friend. She said if I ever tell that I'm thinking of harming myself, she'll never be my friend again, right? Those are the things that come up. I can't go to my mother. She wants me to go to Harvard. Right. So you, you mentioned before the signs. There are five of them, correct? There are five healthy habits for emotional well-being, which are to take care of yourself, check in with others, engage in activities in daily life, relax, take time for yourself, figure out what it means to have self-care and do it. And then knowing the five signs of emotional distress. And that's where we get into the fine discussion of how do I know my friend's in trouble? How do I know they're just not mad because the boyfriend broke up online? And we say, okay, so, so the first one is the personality change. And we say, what does it look like to have a personality change? What does that mean to you? And then agitation. A lot of kids do not know what it means to be agitated. And they don't understand. They think, oh, you're just mad at me. So we we talk really about what that looks like, the difference between being mad at you and just generally agitated. Withdrawn. Kids think this means drugs. Okay, whenever I do this, no matter what, the first thing that comes up is they're withdrawing from drugs, which tells us a whole nother level of information, but not for today. You know, talking about what it means to withdraw from activities from, from life, everyday life. What does that look like? And how would you know? Rachel mentioned social media. That's a whole new caveat for adults that they don't understand how much or when or what it would even look like to withdraw from social media until it was really far gone, right? And then to be hopeless. What does it look like to be hope? Oh, I'm sorry. The fourth is poor self-care. And kids are very interesting when you hear them talk about poor self-care. Most adults will say taking care of your physical, you know, showering, dressing, what have you. But poor self-care to kids, they will bring up exercise. They will bring up food. They will bring up sleep. They will bring up, you know, a lot of different things that might not have come to my mind at first, but it does to them. And that's what's really important. So they can say, oh, yeah, my friend has told me they've been waking up at four o'clock every morning. That's weird. Who, what teenager do you know wants to wake up at four o'clock in the morning? And then the fifth sign is to be hopeless. And I talk to kids about that. What does it mean? I don't care. Whatever. You know, really just existing but not really caring much about anything and and then really talking about what that might look like if their friend felt hopeless like what is the what are the words that they would say and we really get into that very fine discussion and I do this with adults as well and then with adults we talk about how different it is with kids and once we can make those connections that the peers are our first line of knowledge, then we need trusted adults, adults that they can identify who they can trust. And then once we can identify those trusted adults, we can four times more likely prevent that suicide. It's been proven we can, if we can connect those peer leaders to the trusted adults, there's a four times 
more likely chance they would go for help. Mm. So it's, it's, it's really educating them at that level, as well as the parents and everybody else, but really getting them to understand what that, that those personality traits look like in their friends or in somebody their age, regardless if it's a friend. And then maybe you're more comfortable going to your friend's mother. Who is that trusted adult? Let's think about that. Identify that person. Identify three trusted adults in your life. We also do things that try to bring messages of hope, health, and strength. And I'm sure Rachel has heard of this as well as the positivity chart and or gratitude chart. And what we do is for 21 days in a row, if you can write down at the end of the day three things that you are grateful for, your mind will actually start thinking and be programmed to think more gratefully at the end of those 21 days. So those are the type of positive hope, help, and strength ways that you matter is trying to change mental health. And those signs come from the Campaign to Change Direction in Mental Health, which was a collaborative movement and campaign that was started after the Sandy Hook shootings. The White House convened its first summit on mental health, and out of that came this committee of concerned citizens, psychologists, business people, healthcare providers, etc. And those signs were identified because they wanted to come up with a public health campaign that could be similar to stroke and heart, where we can see physical symptoms in those situations. Well, what are the emotional symptoms that we can see in somebody in order to be able to get them help sooner? And that's this entire, now it's gone worldwide. We were in London for the summit with Prince Harry. We're going to be in Toronto in October. We were just in L.A. for the marathon. And all of this started from Montgomery County, Maryland, and that's our base Mm. from kids. And I just want to tell you, Doug, that I have now agreed to say I'm a co-founder, but honestly, these kids came to me. It was their idea. It's their name. It's their thoughts that make this happen. I just guide them. I'm curious about what kinds of students are part of You Matter. Is it in every high school? Is it in every middle school? Is it? And how would you generalize, if you can, the, the kids who are a part of it? Well, it's interesting because it started at Churchill, Whitman, and unfortunately, as Rachel pointed out, there was a big to-do when Evan died. And unfortunately, I do believe there was some contagion that happened after that. So there were, you know, a cluster of things that happened. So it spread to the immediate high schools in the area that were affected. But what has surprised me is by giving these kids their complete control of how to make this grassroots movement work, I expected them to be done when they graduated uh, high school. But instead, they've taken it to college. We are on, I think, 22 campuses now in colleges. And now kids who were Evan's age and grade are graduating college this year. So the kids that were one and two years ahead of him have graduated. They're bringing it back to Montgomery County and making the base stronger now with their leadership and their experience from college and their connection still to that feeling of high school and being able to relate and organize activities and fundraising events and messages that 
really resonate with these kids. So it's really spread on the true dictionary meaning of a grassroots movement where as these kids have been affected, they've taken it. We are in middle schools. We are in high schools. We are in Delaware high schools. We're in high schools in Connecticut and New York. I think that's it for the high schools out of state. But then from there, it's just incredible what else has been happening. So it's, it's, I don't know, I'm not sure really if I've answered your question fully, but it's really self-driven and they make it work. So we've probably answered this question in, in different ways, but I want to ask it one more time. What, what exactly can someone do once they have uh, gone through, you know, the, the healthy habits and, and they know the five signs and they have a, I guess it would be a suspicion that a friend is in a bad place. What's the first thing they should do, Ms. Larkin? Ask. A lot of people are afraid. A lot of people are afraid to ask about suicide because they, they're afraid they're going to give somebody the idea. And lots of research shows that that does not happen. If you're concerned a friend, a family member, somebody you work with is suicidal, you reflect what you see going on with them. I see that you're struggling. I see you're not yourself lately. And sometimes when people are, are struggling in this way, they may think about taking their life. Is this something that you thought about? Asking the question is so important. Listening. Listening is the next step. You have to listen to how bad they feel. Because we care about other folks, particular loved ones or our children, if we hear them talking about how bad they feel or how bad of a person they think they are or how hopeless they are, we want to rush in and fix it, but that's sort of, we need to hear it. We need to not fix it for the person, but help them take care of themselves. We need to connect them to resources, get them additional supports. We need to follow up and check in and say, hey, how you doing? The next day, the day after, send a text. Really be there for them because again, when somebody is struggling with something, it's not something that generally can be fixed overnight. So really listening does make a huge difference. And then encouraging, you know, the activities that Sue was talking about, self-care and, and learning coping skills, relationship skills, building resilience, really taking care of yourself. How would an adult tell a teenager how to learn coping? I mean, what would you do? Well, the first thing I would do is think about how you're having the conversation. For teenagers, a face-to-face -face conversation is extremely overwhelming. So if you want to have a conversation with a teen that you're concerned about, maybe go for a drive in the car or play a video game side by side or go talk to them in their room when the light is out. So it's not so emotionally overwhelming and that gives them more of an opportunity. Or even start a text message chain because that's a little bit easier. Or, and then ask them what they need. What have they already tried? Because a lot of times as adults, we're like, okay, we need to fix this. Here's what you do to fix the situation, X, Y, and Z. Um, you know, teens are really smart and resourceful and resilient, and they might have tried a lot of things already. So what have you tried? Reflect how hard they're working. Um, you know, how can I help you? What do you need from me? Sometimes it's really small. Sometimes they don't know, and just saying, we're gonna hang in there and work on this together. Um, I'm sure Sue has other things that she, she would add, but I think it's continuing in the conversation. It shouldn't be one conversation. It should be many, many conversations. And then model coping skills. When you're having a bad day, show your loved one, your teen, how you deal with it, how you take care of yourself. You know, what kind of things that you do to cope? Do you meditate? Do you go for a walk with the dog? Do you dance around the room to Beyonce? I mean, model good coping because they learn from what they see. We all do and then ask them what, they, what makes them feel better. Mm. 
Okay. We don't give them enough agency. We don't give them enough credit for knowing what works for them. And giving the opportunity to share what does and doesn't work really does make a difference. Okay. If it really does, and, and I 100% agree with everything that Rachel said, and I think that the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention, which has a campaign going on right now, saying seize the awkward, and it's meant to uh, shows people sitting on a couch just not speaking or talking, and then showing that awkward moment where then somebody will speak up and how to do that. So there's some really good videos on on kind of how to do that, which will be a conversation started. They say, have a real convo. And I think that's really important. There are a few things that you can then take from, from the first step, which is asking, do you feel like you're going to harm yourself? I, I'm a little worried about you because you seem to be very upset and it's not just today things along those lines. But then the next step is that, you know, yeah, okay, I, I do want to die. And personally, I have been there. And I don't think anybody would be surprised to hear that. So, you know, you, you really then have to say, do you have a plan? Are you planning something? Because we want to know that if they are. And yeah, I do have a plan, you know, in mind. I have been thinking about it. Then you have to see, do they have the means? Is the intent there? And if that's the case, then you really need to keep them safe for now, which means never leaving that person alone until you get them help immediately. So it really goes from from that level to how do I assess this person? And I'm afraid to call 911. What if this isn't the right thing to do? Kids are, are always second-guessing themselves on adult decisions like this. So giving them those steps to take, ask the question, are you thinking of harming yourself? You seem to be very upset. Help me understand what's going on. So we want to be able to ask them questions. We want to know, are you thinking of hurting yourself? And at that point, when they say yes, there's several things that you can do. You can text the crisis line, you can text the lifeline and every mind support line and say to them, now what do I do? Because what if you don't remember? So the next thing you want to say is, do you have a plan? Is there something that you have in mind? How would you go about doing this? And asking the direct question, because if somebody really is seriously considering it, they are considering it with a plan. And then the last thing would be to discuss whether they have the intent and the means to do that. And you want to be able to remove all of those and keep them safe for now. At the point that you're at that third step where you really feel like you need to get that person help, you want to do it right away and don't leave them alone. Okay. And can I mention the Crisis Center? Because here in Montgomery County, a really good resource is the Crisis Center. It's on Picard Drive. It is open 24-7. Anybody can walk in. It's free. It's confidential. They will see you. They will assess you. They um, they work really closely with the school system as well. So it's a really great resource for people in this county that's available. Okay. It's a little less intimidating than going to the ER, although the ER is often a great choice as well. We've talked about a lot of resources in, in over the last half hour or so, and I think we ought to make it easy for folks to know what they are. You Matter, your website is uh, umttr.org? Correct. Okay, and folks there can find what resources? 
really the resources I would suggest they go to the Every Mind website first are if they are really looking for help immediately. We are not that that group. We are after the crisis is over. Okay. Every Mind, your website is every-mind.org. But we're part of the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline Network, and I like sending people to that site. It's 1-800-273-TALK. Again, nationwide. And there's also, if you go to the website, it is, there's a chat now button. There's also a crisis text line. You can text 741-741 and talk to somebody as well via that way. The crisis center here in Picard is 240-777-4000. So a lot of great resources. And I wanted to just follow up with the uh, <laughs> the idea that it's 1-800-273-8255. I've come to learn from kids they don't know what <laughs> T-A-L-K is on the phone, as we do. Another example of communication at different levels. So 1-800-273-8255 is the crisis lifeline. This has been a, a, an extremely interesting conversation, and I appreciate both our guests. We had Rachel Larkin from Every Mind, and we had Susan Rosenstock from youmatter.org. This has been Montgomery Talk. I'm Doug Tallman, senior reporter at MyMC Media. Our engineer today was Carolyn Roskoskis, and our, our executive producer is Gaynell Evans. Uh, join us next time. Thank you very much.